Well, folks, there are, it is normally at this point that we would have a Bible reading, but uh, we're going to have quite a bit of Bible, I think, in our, uh, in the talk, and I wanted to read something for you uh, that's not from the Bible, but I think reflects very well upon the biblical teaching on the topic of the Lord's Supper. I want to read to you uh, a prayer that is taken from Calvin's liturgy when he was in Geneva. Uh, this is the prayer that he would have made and that he would have said for the people uh, before they celebrated the supper. This is his prayer. As our Lord Jesus Christ has not only offered his body and blood on the cross once for the remission of our sins, but also desires to impart them to us as nourishment for eternal life, grant us this grace, that from true sincerity of heart and ardent zeal, we might receive from him so great a benefit. It is in a sure faith that we may enjoy his body and blood, and indeed his whole self, since as true God and true man, he is truly the holy bread of heaven that gives us life, so that we would no longer live for ourselves and according to our own nature, which is wholly corrupt and depraved, but that he would live in us to lead us to holy, blessed and forever abiding life, that we might also truly be made partakers of the new and eternal testament, the covenant of grace, being certain and sure that it is your good pleasure to be our propitious heavenly Father, not imputing our faults to us, and as to your beloved children and heirs, to provide all things necessary for both body and soul, that we would ascribe to you glory and thanks without ceasing, and magnify your name in deeds and words, so grant us, Heavenly Father, to celebrate today the blessed memory of your dear Son, to engage in it and to announce the benefit of his death, so that as we receive a renewed increase and strengthening in faith and all goodness, we might extol you as our Father and glory in you with greater confidence. Amen. I just thought that Calvin's prayer really helps us to understand much of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. I thought it, it helped us to, to think about what is it that we hope will happen as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this evening, that's what we're looking at. The, the second of the New Testament sacraments, the Lord's Supper, are often referred to as communion. Those who were part of our new members classes on Sunday night will be familiar with this. We're going to be looking at some of the same things we looked at at new members class. But before we dig into this sacrament itself, I want to remind you what a sacrament is. Um, the Shorter Catechism asks that question. In question 92, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is a sacrament? And the answer is that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, 
Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. A sacrament is a sensible sign. And through that sign, the benefits of the new covenant, the gospel of grace, are represented, they are sealed, and they are applied to believers. Now, when the catechism uses that word sensible, it doesn't mean that it's reasonable or that it's responsible. That's not the word. That's not what it means here in this context. Here, the, the word means that these signs appeal to our senses, to our sight and our smell and our taste and our touch. What we've said in previous weeks is that the main way God gifts his salvation to his people is through the preaching of his word. Romans 10, you'll remember, puts it that faith comes by hearing. But Christ has instituted in the New Testament other ways for the gospel to be communicated to us. He's instituted the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these speak to our senses. They are sensible signs. We can see the gospel. We can taste and touch and smell the gospel. All of our senses are engaged in baptism and in communion. I think in passing, it's really helpful to understand that the, the sacraments then are very uncultural. We don't need anything that is particularly Irish to share the gospel and to, to have to celebrate the sacraments. We don't need anything that's American or Italian or Middle Eastern, for that matter, or African. To have all the elements of worship, all the elements of the service of worship, including the entrance initiation into the church and the ongoing covenant made, all we need is a Bible in the local language. We need some water for baptism and some bread and wine for communion. And these things, water and bread and wine, are very, very simple things. They're found in nearly every culture on earth, and they're found throughout history. And so the practice of Christianity is something that I think has been designed by God to translate across cultures to transcend cultures. I think that's helpful for us to think about as, as we think about the, the application of the, the church, church's practice in terms of maybe global mission. We're not trying to make people around the world to be like us. The gospel transcends cultures. We're not trying to make Irish Christians. We're trying to make followers of Christ around the world. But as we move on then to speak about the Lord's Supper, I think it's important that we realize this is a sensible sign. It appeals to our senses. And this is something that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of. The, the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism has been really helpful for me in thinking through the Lord's Supper. If you want, let me know and I'll, I'll send you a copy of this question from the Heidelberg Catechism or a copy of the whole catechism. Question 75 
of the Catechism speaks about the Lord's Supper. This is what it says. It asks, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? Well, the answer says, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth, the bread and the cup of the Lord are sure signs of Christ's body and blood. So surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. So if we're to break down that answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, we have to realise, first of all, that this is a command of Christ. In accordance with the regulative principle, we only do in worship what God commands. And communion is something that Jesus has commanded in the New Testament. And we'll go on to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a moment. But when we hear that word command, we can quite often in our modern mindset think that a command is restrictive for us. It may be even bad for us. We need to realize that when Jesus commands us to do something, it's for our good. It's for our blessing. Jesus wants to bless his people. So the sacrament of communion is commanded by Jesus as something that is for our good. It's to bless us. As we've already mentioned in the past weeks, the sacrament of communion is a means of grace an ordinary means of grace. The answer that we've just read from the Heidelberg Catechism highlights two areas of blessing for us in the Lord's Supper. The first is that we remember the death of Christ in our place. And the second is that we receive nourishment in our souls for everlasting life. And it's around those two areas that I want to focus our thoughts tonight. So first of all, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the death of Jesus in our place. Jesus himself spoke about this in the words of institution, which he gave to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. We, we read this, Paul, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And the way that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about this biblical institution, about this biblical truth, I think it's brilliant because the Heidelberg Catechism uses two little words that I have found very, very helpful when it comes to taking communion. And those words are, as surely. As surely. The Catechism says, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. When we look upon the sacrament of communion, when we see the minister holding up the bread and breaking it before us, Christ is not being re-sacrificed, but in our sight, we can see that Jesus has been broken for us. As surely as we see the bread, so surely has Jesus been broken for us. As the wine is passed to us, we are reminded of his blood which has been poured out for us. So surely as we see those things, did the death of Christ actually happen? The death of Christ for your sins is as real as the bread and wine that you can see on the communion table. What a great thing it is to have in our heads as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, every time we partake in the supper, we remember the death of Christ, but we don't only remember it, we proclaim it. We proclaim it to ourselves, to our own hearts, and to those watching on. Jesus' death was a death of substitution. He died in our place, in the place of all those who have faith in him. Jesus did not deserve to die. He died in your place as your substitute, on your behalf. To fully understand Christ's death on our behalf, we might look back to the Passover in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the final plague that God brings upon the Egyptians is the death of the firstborn son in each household. But God makes a difference between his people and the Egyptians. He gives his people a sign and a seal to protect them from the plague. They have to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And when God saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over those houses. So in a very real and deliberate way, the lamb was a substitute. The lamb died in the place of the people. For those who trusted enough to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel, well, they were saved from death. Friends, isn't that the gospel? If we trust in the blood of another, 
the body broken and the blood spilled of the Lamb of God, aren't we too saved from death? It's no coincidence then that Jesus instituted the meal of communion during the festival of Passover. The Passover was a once-off event, but it was remembered through a meal of God's people each year. And it was the celebration meal of the Passover. It was at that meal that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, which continues to this day. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. By trusting in his body, broken, and his blood spilled, we're set free from sin and from death. Jesus died in our place as our substitute. So each time we see the elements of communion on the table, and as they are passed into our hands, we not only remember, but we proclaim to our very hearts that surely as we see these things, so surely did Christ die for my sins. And so surely are they forgiven and removed from me as far as the east is from the west. Well, that brings us to the second thing the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us about the Lord's Supper. And that is through participation, we are nourished in our souls to everlasting life. I don't know if you can see the bottom of the board there. We're nourished in our souls to everlasting life. You see, God knows his people. And he knows that even though we are forgiven, we are justified in his sight, will we continue to sin, don't we? We sin all the time. God knows that we have a tendency to feel guilty for that. We have a tendency to allow our sin to become a weight around our necks. We feel shame and we feel guilt for what we have done. Now, feeling guilty is not a bad thing if we allow it to lead us to Christ. If we allow it to lead us to repentance and renewed forgiveness through Christ. But we don't often remember the freedom and forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. How often is it? that we have felt dirty and unworthy because of something we've said, something we've done, something we've thought or something we've looked at. That's why in our services of worship, we have a weekly confession of sin in our prayers. And we have a scriptural assurance of pardon to remind us every Sunday that we are forgiven our sins through Jesus. God has also given us the sacrament of communion, to nourish and to strengthen us through the Christian life. Through participation in communion, we are strengthened in our faith because we come to understand more and more of what Jesus has done for us. The deeper our understanding of our own sin, the more we realize what Jesus has done. And so again, those two words from the Heidelberg Catechism, as surely, are really helpful. 
As surely, the Catechism says, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. The sacrament of communion is a sensible sign whereby Christ and the blessings of his death are represented, are sealed, and are applied to us as believers. The next time we take communion, whenever that might be, as you handle the, the bread and the wine, as, as you smell it before you as, you, as you taste it, as you chew with the bread in your mouth and taste the wine on your tongue, you should know that just as surely as those things are real to you, so surely is Christ nourishing and refreshing your soul. He is deepening your faith and making you willing and able to live for him. And so it's important to note then the meaning of the word communion. We're sharing something together with one another. And you know, that's a huge reason why we are reluctant to celebrate communion at the present time because of COVID. There are people who are not present in our services of worship, not able to be present, who should be present. So the body is separated. But we're also in communion, communing with the Lord Jesus. We are sharing fellowship with him at his table. You know, there's something special, isn't there, about going to someone's home and, and sharing a meal with them. Barriers are broken down. Fellowship is enjoyed that wouldn't happen otherwise. And when all of this COVID stuff is long in the memory, I hope that you will all be regular in the Mass, sharing fellowship and food together. Well, so it should be said that communion is called the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's table, very deliberately. Communion is not Jamie Maguire's table. It's not the table of Kings Mills or Jarrett's Church. It's not the table of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. It is the Lord's table. And all who are, all are, are welcome. Everyone is welcome who have been invited by the Lord Jesus and who have put their hope and their trust and their faith in him alone. And so the reason that people might be excluded from this sacrament should not be because of the attitude of the minister or the attitude of the elders. Rather, people might be excluded as a way of disciplining them in order to, to strengthen their faith in Jesus and to protect them from breaking the commandment of Christ. The institution given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 goes on to say this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. And so it is the job of the elders in a congregation to, 
to do what we call fencing the table so that people who might eat or drink unworthily are protected from doing so. The communion meal is a meal for those who have their faith in Jesus. It is a meal to proclaim his death, to be nourished and refreshed in our souls. It's something that should be done in faith. In fact, it must be done in faith. The elements, like I've already said, are very simple, bread and wine. But when they're received in faith, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, actually and really applies the blessings of salvation to his people. So it is a covenant meal reserved for the covenant people of God. As Calvinist Protestants in the Presbyterian Church, we do not believe that the bread becomes the body or the wine becomes the blood, but we do believe in a real spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. This is his meat, his table, and through it he nourishes and refreshes his people, and his gospel is proclaimed to us. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let me pray for us.